Okay, today is February 17, 2007. My name is Lonnie Gabriel Landred. I was born in Quinell, BC, where I've lived all my life. And uh, I'm here to tell a story about what had happened to me in uh, 1999. So you were living in a cabin on the Nash Highway? On the Nasco Highway. On the Nasco Highway, and what year was that? Uh, 1999. 1999, yes. and, and you were employed uh, at the time doing what type of profession? I was I was doing a danger falling. Danger falling for yes, for all the local sawmills. In oh, Canal. okay. Okay. Uh, my brother is a general contractor oh, okay. for the mills, and uh, I was I know most people most of the people in Quinell because I've lived there all my life. The situation started. I'd gone into town, and uh, because I don't have running water at my cabin, I was going to my friends and. Uh, having a shower. Well, it was uh, October 11th. I was house-sitting for a friend of mine and she wanted me to look after a trailer for six weeks. So uh, I was staying there and traveling back and forth to work from the trailer with my brother. And I was painting her cupboards. Uh, the fall or the previous Friday, which was October 8th, I had gotten laid off work, and I had just finished painting her cupboards. I went for a sleep, and I woke up at 1.30 in the morning and I had no cigarettes. So I went for a walk up to Sugarloaf Ballpark, which is kind of a shortcut to go to 7-Eleven. Uh, when I got to the top of the hill, I heard this vehicle pull in. So I, I walked slowly up the hill and was looking to see who this might might be. And I see a seen a police car with the lights on in the interior. And there was a van, a, a dark colored van, backed into the kind of into the hill below me. And I was wondering what was going on. And I just stayed in the shadows and just watched what was happening. And uh, this police officer got out of the van and walked around to the side of the police car, which was driven by Bev Hosker, uh, and he was talking to her. I couldn't hear because her car was still running. I couldn't hear what was said, and then he said something, and then he walked back to the van, and I thought they were going to leave. Well, instead of walking to the passenger's door, or the driver's door, he walked around the back of the van and opened the back doors. And when the back doors opened up, the interior light was on, and I seen a pair of feet sticking out of a, a beige-colored carpet. And at that time, I was probably 50, 50 feet away. And I thought, well, what's going on here? And I seen him, he flopped open the carpet, and I seen this girl that was semi-nude, she had a bra and panties on, and she looked like she was unconscious, and she looked like she was dirty or, or bruised. Um, then the, I heard the police car door open, and she walked, I had seen this lady, Bev Hosker, get out of the car and walk around to the trunk. Well, I didn't see her using keys, I was looking around the other side of the tree and I'm watching her, and she had opened the trunk and, and, and took out two jugs of uh, bleach. It looked like bleach jugs. 
And when I looked back around the tree on the other side, I seen this police officer, and he had lifted the girl up and he had her by the hair, and I seen him stick a knife in her neck right about here. And I couldn't see the knife because of the angle that I was at, but I seen, seen the blood just pour out and down the front of her. And I absolutely panicked. I didn't know what to do, I ran. I just got out of there and I ran back to the trailer. And I got in the trailer and I didn't know what I was gonna do next. Like, I just, total shock. And I heard uh, four shotgun blasts. When I heard that, I thought, well, not all cops are bad. I gotta do something, I gotta, I gotta phone 911. And I phoned 911. And when I'm on the phone with 911, there was a operator from 911 on there. And, and I said, well, there's, there was four shotgun blasts. And when I was on the phone with her, there was four more. And they were up at Sugarloaf Ballpark. She said, well, we'll dispatch two police, or a police car to investigate. And I hung up the phone and I was totally shaken. I went to the liquor cabinet and I got out a bottle of vodka and I sat down and I had several drinks. And I don't know how much of the bottle I drank. I woke up in the morning and I was still on the couch and I got up to make a, a pot of coffee. And in the trailer, it's the kitchen's in the center of the trailer. And I, when I was making the coffee, it's right below the window. And I looked out and I seen two police officers going into the trailer next door in number one Bartels. And the trailer I was, I was looking after was number 24 Bartels. And as I stood there and, and watched, there was two more police officers went in. And I thought, well, that's, that's awfully strange. What are they doing at this neighbor's trailer? Well, I watched all day and they had set up surveillance cameras and everything on the trailer that I was looking after. Later that night, I seen the cop that murdered the young girl show up at this trailer. Well, Hosker, which was also one of the ones that were, she was in the police car the night, or the night before when I seen that girl get murdered. Okay, can you identify the girl? Yes. Well, not at that time. Okay. I, I didn't recognize her. Okay. Um, but the two weeks previous, there were signs on uh, North Fraser Drive and that we drove by every day going to work of this young missing girl. But I, like I didn't, it didn't look like her because of the way she was undressed and her hair was all upheaveled and everything. See, I lost my train of thought. That's okay, just relax. Yeah. Okay. I know it's hard to talk about stuff like this. But yeah. Um, maybe we should ask uh, where uh, the constable is now. Do you know where that constable is now? Yes, he's in Prince George. I had access to, to a lot of different people, and I ne I've never told anybody what I saw, but I asked a lot of questions of people, and through that I've gain knowledge that this police officer is in, involved in at least eight murders that I know of that I can construe. 
uh, the lady police officer that was there that night, Bev Hosker, she was found dead out on the highway. Have you ever been uh, threatened for um, telling or disclosing this information? Have you been threatened by anyone? Yes, yes I have, yes, they come to my house. Well, we were building my house and there was more and more incidents with people walking through the bush at night around my house and like I said, there's, there's no neighbors or anything. Um, I got scared and I went into town like, and, and having talked to Daryl, I realized that they had found me, that they were gonna try something. I went over to the sheriff's department and talked to a sheriff named Mike whose name I didn't, last name I don't know, and, uh, and told him that I needed to be put in protective custody, that I have information that could implicate a cop in multiple murders. And he says, well, we don't do that. He says, you'll have to go up and apply to get in front of a judge. So I went upstairs to the court registry and spoke to a, one of the ladies that work in there and, asked, and said to her that I have information that could implicate a cop in multiple murders. And she said, and that I'd like to an application to get before a judge. She told me that I had no right to, that I should go and speak to Crown Prosecutor. So I went and spoke to the Crown Prosecutor, who I believed to be was Patricia Smith, I believe. Uh, and I told her the same thing, that I have information that could implicate a cop in multiple murders. And she said, well, due to my job, she said, we can't do anything. I suggest you contact a larger police station, perhaps Prince George. And I said, no. I said, this police officer is high up in the food chain and he has connections to Prince George. So she said, well, perhaps Camlins. So uh, I said, well, I don't know whether I would do that. And she said, well, you could try and contact CSIS. Did you try to contact Jesus? Later, yes. Okay. Um, and I had rushed in and got Daryl Duick, who was building my new house. And we went out and we were putting out the fire and this guy from West Fraser came out and was helping us. We got it under control and he said that he would send a crew out tomorrow to finish mopping it up. Well, we went back to the, the, the house site where Daryl was staying in a, in a small trailer and we had some dinner, and he said, well, do you want some coffee? And I said, no, I'll just have a glass of water. So I got a glass of water, and I was sitting there, and he was drinking the coffee, and all of a sudden, he just started like swaying back and forth. And he says, I gotta go to bed. And he got up, and he staggered off to the trailer. And I thought, well, that's weird. He hasn't been drinking or anything. He seemed fine before that. And uh, just previous to that, my dog had started barking and it sounded like somebody was walking through, like, through the bush. So I went and investigated, but I didn't take a flashlight with me. And I never seen anything, it was too dark to see anything. But I got back in my truck and I, I have to drive two kilometers to go around to my cabin, which is on the other side of the property. And I stopped and unlocked my gate and locked the gate behind me when I went in. And I got into the cabin and I went to close my greenhouse up. And I had a flashlight at that time. And I closed my greenhouse up and I was going back into the, into the cabin. And my dog came out from behind my pickup and he was chewing on something. 
And I thought, that's strange. You know. I wonder what he found. And I went in and I have a propane light, which is connected to a 100-pound propane tank that stands in my house. And uh, as I lit the lamp, when I turned around, my dog fell over. And I couldn't believe my eyes. I thought maybe he had a heart attack or something. I went and shook him and I tried to, to bring him awake and he wouldn't move and I, he was breathing fine. And I thought, oh my God, what's going on? So I went out in my truck and I thought that he'd been poisoned or something. And I went out and got my guns out of my truck and brought them in the house and loaded them. And I barricaded my porch to a certain extent. And, and I put two chairs in front of the door in case somebody come in. And I sat there, I was sitting there on the couch and I had the flashlight shoved to the back of the couch. And I was sitting there having a cigarette. And in my, you gotta come through a porch so there's dual doors. And on my outside doors, which is my meat room, I had black plastic on, on a screen door. And I had taken a split plastic so that I could see outside. And it was fairly light outside, but it was pitch black in the cabin, mm -hmm. other than the flashlight. And uh, I was sitting there having a cigarette, and I hear this whap, and it sounded like a gunshot from a distance. I later learned that it was my camper door being thrown open. Uh, my nephew was out there helping me, had, was out there helping me build my house. And I had sent him home because of what was happening. And he had been staying in the, in the camper. Well, the next thing I see this little, this light green light going around my door. And I thought, well, am I seeing things? Like, what is that? And then I could see it in the, in the slit in the door, in the plastic. And this went on for a couple minutes, and then I hear it, and I could hear the, the screen in my door getting cut. And then all was quiet, and my dog, he was snoring. He was still unconscious and snoring. And next thing you know, I see this hand come through this hole, and I could I got a latch on the inside, like a hook latch, and I could hear this hand going up and down the wall, and then he found the latch and unlatched the door, and the hand went back out. And now I'm really scared, because if it was somebody I knew, they would have knocked on my door. So I grabbed my 12-gauge shotgun, and I had it to my shoulder, pointed it at the door. Well, all of a sudden, the door opened up, and this guy came in, and he was all in black, and he had this little green light looked like on the side of his head, but he was all in black. And uh, he stepped in the door, and he, when he came in, he came in low, and when he raised his hand, there was a gun in it, and I told him, hold it. And it kept coming up, so I blew him with the shotgun, right up, and I, I was aiming for the gun in his hand, because he wasn't the threat the gun in the hand was. So I aimed for his arm, and all I seen in the, in, the, in the muzzle flash was his feet going backwards out the door. And the door swung shut, and then I could hear kicking on my front step. While I didn't know how many were there, I could see this little green light through the shotgun blast in the, in the wall. And I picked up my 30-30, and I fired it through the hole in the wall. And I heard him get up, and he st stumbled across the front of my house. And as he ran past the front door, I fired, fired one right through the front door. And then he went in behind my wood pile, which is located to the right of my, my front door. And I could hear himself throw himself against the wall. 
or to, against the wood. And uh, I was totally scared. I mean, I couldn't believe this was happening. And uh, I put one right into the wood pile. And then he bounced down the side of the house three or four times. And he went around behind my, my cabin. And that's where I was located in the back of my little cabin. And there's a window back there. And I thought, my God, he's going to try shooting me through the window. And he bounced down the side of the house, back of the house. And then I could hear him where his back hit and his head hit. So I stuck the shotgun, I picked the shotgun up and I stuck it to the wall, which I thought was the wall, and I'm standing in pitch black, and I pulled the trigger. Well, I'm reloading it again, because that was my last shell, and I was gonna go out and see what was, like I was going outside. And when I was reloading the gun, I put one in backwards, and I jammed it up. And I didn't know, it, like I couldn't get it out, it was too dark in the house. So I picked up my 30-30, and I'd forgot to bring the shells in. They were in my glove box in my truck. And I thought it was empty, and it was laying open. Well, I slammed it shut, and the gun went off, and I blew a hole through the 100-pound propane tank in the house. Well, there's gas rushing out, and I thought, oh, my God, it's going to blow. And I ran straight out the street, right out the front door. And I just kept running, and I got up on top away from my house, and I turned around and I tried calling my dog, well, there was no, no sound or nothing, and I couldn't see, quite see behind the back of my house where, this, where I thought this cop was dead, because I thought I'd shot him in the back of the head. Uh, how did you know it was a cop at that, at that time? Oh, I could see his face. Oh, okay. Oh, when I, when, oh yeah, when he comes through the door, I could see his face plain as day that it was... Do you know it what was, cop it was? It was um, so I looked behind the house and I couldn't see because of my rain barrel that sat at the back corner. And I thought, well, Daryl's got my other guns, or my other gun, my 303 over at the trailer where he was building the house. So I ran in my bare feet, and all I had on was jeans and a, and a shirt. I ran a mile across and I got to where my skitter was sitting and there's a log deck sitting in front of my skitter. And I'd stopped, and I was probably 100 yards from, the, from his trailer, and I yelled three or four times. And all of a sudden, I seen two police officers come straight, straight across the landing at me. And uh, I could see their yellow stripes. And I turned around, and I ran back down the ridge, back towards my cabin where I'd just come from. And uh, I thought, well, I can't go back to the cabin. So I ran out into my, into my hay field. Well, the beaver had backed my hayfield up, so it's got two, three feet of water in it. So I just headed straight out into the water, and I got out there about halfway. And I thought, well, I got this blue shirt on him standing out like a sore thumb. So I took my shirt off, and I dropped it. And I still had this 30-30 with me in my hand. And uh, all of a sudden, from the cabin side, I could hear splash, splash, splash in the water. And I, they were getting closer. So I started head away from them, and I went across this beaver dam, and then I headed south along the side of my meadow, where the water wasn't quite so deep. And I got up into the timber, and I couldn't see in the dark. In the timber, it was too dark to see. So I just crouched down next to a tree, and I watched two police officers run past. Went running past, and they had these yellow fluorescent yellow coats on that says police on the back. While I they went running past and they went up around the corner. Well, when they went around the corner, I went up into the timber farther 
because my eyes had adjusted. And I sat down next to a fir tree, and I leaned my 30-30 against the, this big fir tree, and I sat down, and I was catching my breath, because I was totally out of breath. And I could hear them go up into the timber about 100, 200 feet away from me, and they started, I could hear them coming back towards me again. So I turned around, and I was on a point of land. And I was on one side, and I ran across to the other side, in the, and I got scratched all the hell, and I, when I went over top the hill to go down into my field again, there was a piece of blowdown, and it took me across the stomach and knocked the wind out of me, and it flipped me right over it. So now I'm laying in the, in the brush, and I thought, well, I can't run no more. I'm out of, I was totally winded, and I got out in the tall grass, and I crouched down. And I could hear them come over the hill, and they started walking around in the tall grass, and I could hear them on the radios talking back and forth. Do you see him? Do you see him? No, where the hell did he go? You go over that way. And they walked around me for 20 minutes, and then they started moving away, and I thought, well, I'll just stay here. And I was getting hypothermic. I was getting cold and, and starting to shake. And I was crouched right as low to the water as I could get, and I was there an extra 10 minutes, and I thought maybe they'd, they'd gone, but uh, I knew I had to get out of the water or else I was going to pass out. So when I stood up and went to take a step, my, my legs were so cold that I hooked the grass and I fell into the water. So I started yelling, no, no, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. and. Uh, I never heard any sound coming back towards me. So I got up again and I got into the, underneath the spruce tree. And I knew I was gonna die of hypothermia of exposure if I didn't get warm. So I grabbed the moss off the ground and I rolled all the moss back and I crawled underneath it and I rolled the moss right up and all you could see was just my eyes and my hat. And I laid there and I was getting warm. And then I heard my dog bark, which made me look up towards my cabin. And I thought, okay, he's alive. And uh, when I looked up there, I could see at my gate, plain as day, there was a police car with the searchlights shining on my gate. And it's a steel gate, and I'd put five, ten thousand pounds of cement on either side of it. And there were two cops trying to knock my gate down. So I'm laying there wondering what to do and wondering if Daryl's alive or dead because when my camper door got thrown open I thought it was a gunshot so I thought maybe they killed Daryl and I didn't know and I wanted to go up there and check on him. Um, when I looked up the new house it was the sun was starting to come up and get light again. When I looked up the top of my new house it was all open on the top. I could see two police officers with binoculars standing on the top of my new house searching my field and having been out there all summer building my house I knew that they couldn't see me in the bush mm -hmm. they could only see to the bush line and uh, so I just laid there and watched and after a while I thought well I better get I better go for help I gotta do something okay, yeah and when I got up and I stepped on a twig I heard them say there's something moving over there so I stepped in behind another spruce tree and I waited a couple minutes and my field being flooded like that, I thought, well, heck with them. I'm getting out of here. And I started to run. Well, I could hear them run down the ladder and then down the house in front of the, 
in front of the bank in front of my house. And I thought, well, they're going to have to swim to get me. So I just kept running. And then I run nine kilometers across country. And I had been cutting trails previous uh, that summer. And I had hung a 22 caliber rifle in a tree upside down. And I had left shells there just in case of bears. So I headed for that. And when I got close to that, I could hear the water pump from the fire the previous night. And I thought, uh, i got to be around people. So I started working my way across country towards the sound of the pump. And I swam three swamps. And, and I just got close, and the, and the pump shut off. Well, by the time I got there, they had gone. So I went out to the Blackwater Road on this crossover trail that I know. And a logging truck was coming along. And as it come around the corner, I ran right out in front of it. And I was just bleeding everywhere. My toes were all broken. My feet were just torn to all the pieces. And I flagged him down. And when he stopped, I just ran around and jumped in the truck. And he said, don't shoot me. And I said, I don't plan on shooting you at all. I said, just get me the heck out of here. And I just left the gun on the floor. So he took me out to the work site and then went into town. And I get to my mom's. And she was just in a panic because she hadn't, I guess Daryl had discovered my house had been shot up that morning at 10 o'clock. He went over there and seen it all shot up. So he ran to my mom's and they phoned the RCMP, the Cornell RCMP. And they never bothered even phone, the RCMP didn't phone back. Uh, my mom and Daryl ended up going out to the place and the police showed up at 4 o'clock that afternoon when they got Daryl phoned him at 10 a.m. And when they were sitting at the end of my road, my mom said that there was a, she could see there was burnout tracks at the end of my road. I imagine too, there must have been a police car sitting at the end of the road and after they got a report of him getting shot, they burned out to get in there. The police officer that you shot, is there any um, evidence reporting uh, in regards to him ever being shot? Uh, it was a few months later, there was a, or a few weeks later, after September 4th is the day that he tried to murder me, uh, 1999. Three weeks later after that, there was a report of him, a police officer, being shot by one of his own in Prince George. And it just so happens that he was the police officer that was shot. Okay, what, uh, can you name the police officer? And this is in the Quinnell Hospital? No, he was in Prince George oh, Hospital. Prince, Prince he George. was treated here by a, a nurse and then sent to Prince George. Okay. Okay, have you been to any media sources or outside uh, sources trying to get something done about this case and what you've seen? Yes, uh, at first I went to two reporters uh, that were my neighbor's friends. Uh, they worked for the Caribou Observer. Okay. Uh, I started telling them my story uh, I had two meetings with them. On the third meeting, uh, they didn't show. Uh, I later found out that uh, they had both lost their jobs. Um, I, I sent letters to the Solicitor General, the Governor General, the Attorney General, uh, the Prime Minister of Canada. Which, which Prime Minister? Uh, Paul Martin. Okay. And several MPs like Sven, Sven Robison, um, hang on here, Stephen Owen, Keith Martin, uh, Richard Harris, 
I uh, sent, also sent letters to, uh, it was called a, a, a call for justice, and it, w it was sent to CSIS, uh, both the Ottawa and Burnaby branches. Uh, Justice Canada, who's the Solicitor General, Office of the Ethics Counselor, CBC Radio to uh, Toronto, the Ombudsman, uh, Adrian Clarkson, the Governor General, uh, Philip May Mayfield, who's my MP. Uh, Was there any response from any of these people? I did receive some responses from uh, some of them. Uh, my MP said that, that due to his job that that he could, he has no mandate over the RCMP. Uh, all of the responses I got back were negative, like nobody could help me. Why do you think uh, that is the response that you got? I couldn't understand why that why that was the response I got back. I figured, well, somebody would be interested in, in knowing that a police officer was involved in, in several murders. Okay. And so I sent a second letter to Paul Martin uh, with a sworn statement that was notarized by a notary republic in Quenelle, and I sent it registered mail, and I never received any answer back from that. Uh, I tried every avenue to get a, a federal investigation outside the RCMP started, right. and I had no luck. Weeks after I escaped uh, them out there the night they tried to murder me, I got on a bus and I went to Vancouver and I talked to the head of major crimes down there, uh, who is of the, no of the RCMP okay. in in uh, right down down downtown Vancouver. Uh, his name was Philip. Where is it here? Patrick Phillips. Okay. Of, and I made a video statement there, and I went into the police station, and made a video statement in the police station. Uh, and I told him what I saw. When I told him what I saw, he sat there and cried and asked me all of these questions. I answered to everyone on video. And when I, when I left, when he got me out in the hall, he said to me three times, he said, this is very important to my investigation. This is very important to my investigation. Like, because I know how she was murdered and there's not many people other than the killers that know, maybe the coroner or or people like that or that are in the know. Uh, the police investigation that he started went on for six weeks. I had phoned him twice and talked to him. Uh, the third time I went to phone him, uh, he's no longer with the, the, with the Prince George Major Crimes Unit. Well, he had come down here and, and altered the tape, and they used it against me in the application to take my firearms away, saying that I was dangerous to police. How do you know the outcome of the tape? Because I listened to the tape. I have, I'm in possession of a copy of the tape, okay. and I know the, the story that I told, and the story that I told on the phone is nothing like the story that, that was on that tape. Okay. And Shorty Shoemaker was sitting right beside me when I phoned there, and when I phoned there, I told them that my name was Lonnie Gabriel Landard, that I was born March 20th, 1963. And when the tape first started playing in the courtroom, it had me denying, or denying 
them questioning me who I was. And, and there were several other parts of the tape that had been altered, like the names of the police officers that were in, in the surveillance unit that was across from number 24 Bartels, Dorothy Dux. Uh, they changed those names and the names of the police officers that were out there that night when they tried to murder me on September 4th, uh, 2003. How did you get a copy of the original tape? Uh, I don't have the original. I have a copy from the court itself. Uh, they took my guns away. Uh, they found two, the, the shotgun that was jammed up. They found that one. And the 22 that I was in possession of when I went, when I, after I escaped them. And I had to take the 30-30 in and give it to them at the police station after I went to court. Uh, while I was on the stand, I testified that about me seeing the murder uh, and that I had other information that would implicate this cop in multiple murders. And at the end of my court, they took my guns away for three years. And the judge told me, Judge Blake, told me that I was a liar. Um, I was under oath, and as far as I know, it's two years perjury if, mm -hmm. if they prove that I am lying. And I have no reason to lie to begin with. These cops are very vindictive, and they come after you any way, which way they can. And if they don't themselves, they get their other police officers to come after you. Um, the, the, that night you said you saw that uh, Bev, uh, I can't remember the officer's name, the police officer? Hosker. Hosker, um, yes. take out of the trunk what appeared to be two bleach bottles? Yes. Do you have any idea what those may have been for, or did you see what they I were didn't used for? I didn't see. I learned later uh, through talking to other people that the body had been bleached. So, uh, pros. Uh, in order to set the time of de death off. So that's what you're implying that happened? I believe because she left the Brotherhood of the RCMP that they were scared that she would come forward because she could, she could, uh, yes, conscience. Like Jim Jensen, uh, the one that was running the Argo, uh, he stated to my mother uh, just previous to, to quitting the police force in Quinell, and going to work for Argo, he stated to her that uh, this was the most corrupt police force in all of Canada. And that was the reason for him leaving, because I believe that they all have knowledge that these murders are, are taking place and they are covering it up because if one's made to look bad, like if you implicate a, a cop as a serial killer, it's going to make them all look bad. Mm -hmm. So you, do you think they're getting orders from higher up? Or do you think it's just a... I, I believe that from what, what I've been through and, and all the police stations that I've talked to, that it is being covered up from the, the toppest ranks of the RCMP. Well, actually, uh, my, they just totally destroyed my credibility. Uh, they've done everything to, to say that I was, I've been, that I've been crazy. 
uh, I have no reason to lie over this. Like, the only thing they're trying to do is murder me. Like, other than that, I hadn't. I've never had many run-ins with the law. I had trouble. When I was in trouble when I was a kid, but uh, that was when I was 18 years old and out on the street, and I had been working for 14 years uh, running a silviculture company doing danger falling and and we had uh, seven, eight employees sometimes that I'd have to, to to be foreman over. I even I even went to mental health after all this and and uh, and spoke with a counselor and he took he even said well this this just doesn't sound right, what you're telling me. And he sent me up for a brain scan in Prince George. There was nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with my brain. Like it, it functions quite well. <laughs> Do you have any uh, recent criminal reports say in the last 15 years or so? Uh, I have two impaireds uh, in the last 15 years, and uh, the last last impaired was them trying to trap me out of my house. Uh, at the time when I got the impaired, when they said that I blew the breathalyzer, I wasn't even in the police station at that time. I had already been gone. Uh, I'd only had three beer and yet it said that I blew point one four and one five. And all they were trying to do was entrap me out at my property out rural and so that I couldn't travel anywhere. And they took my uh, superintendent of motor vehicles, just took my, my driver's license for a period of three years. So now I'm stranded. Like, I don't, I don't drive. Hey, when, did they, uh, when did they take your driver's license? Uh, 2000, took them two and a half years to put me into court. Uh, it was a month, a month before they tried killing me. Yeah. That they give me giving me the impaired, yeah, and so you automatically you got you got 21 days to appeal it, which I did, and for work purposes, and I was denied, and then you automatically lose it for 90 days, and it was during that 90 days that that they come and try to murder me in my house. Yes, I believe that they would. Right. And uh, these people are still available and alive. And, uh, uh, except for Dorothy, Do Do Dorothy just passed away. But the rest of my witnesses that 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 I that I actually am scared to say their, their, names. their names because there of the threat against them. Yes. Yes. 